Good morning. My name is Tim. If you might be visiting us for the very first time, which is a great thought for us, let's take our Bibles, church, as Brandon has prayed. Let's take our Bibles and head for the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 12. There's a note page in your bulletin if you'll grab that. And if you got out of the house without your Bible and you would like one, then Charlie's in the back ready to supply you with a copy of God's Word. And and this may be your first Sunday at IBC. And, and if that is true for you, that is a great thought for us. We're glad you found the Bible Church this morning. And if you're looking for a church home, maybe we would be that church home. Only I really must let you know that your first Sunday with us is also our last Sunday in a study series that we've been sharing together for quite a while in the book of Ecclesiastes. Two mornings ago, church family, I told us that we had rounded the last turn on the track and we were heading down the final straightaway. Well, today we break the tape. Today we cross the finish line with verses 9 through 14 of chapter 12. And that's a good feeling, don't you think? That's a great feeling to me. It's been, a, it's been a long race and it's been broken up a little bit with other things that we have done. So it is a good feeling to, to cross the finish line together this morning. And, and you are to be commended, commended for your patience in this series, commended for your, your persistence and for your diligence as we have worked our way verse by verse through really one of the most challenging and some would say the most challenging of Old Testament books. Way back in the beginning... We were introduced to Solomon and to his diary. The book of Ecclesiastes is is his diary, the diary he kept, in which he chronicles for us a desperate search. Is it possible, Solomon wonders, is it possible to experience a a deeply satisfying, deeply fulfilling, intensely purpose-filled, meaningful life apart from God? Can that happen? Can I, he asks, from what I extract from this life only, found? can I find that source, that something other than God, out of which I can uh, find my reason for being, my fulfillment in life? That's something that will infuse my life with purpose and, and give it meaning and fulfillment and great joy and satisfaction. Can I find it without God? From the very beginning, we knew we were in for a rough ride, if uh, you remember, because Solomon, he opens up his diary with some pretty harsh words. Chapter 1, verse 2. Do you remember these words? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or maybe your version says meaningless. Meaningless says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We read those words and we know things are going to get a little bit tough for us because this is Solomon's main theme and his mantra when a life with with substance and meaning and purpose has to be found in this world only. The Hebrew word for vanity, we, we come upon it 38 times in our study of this book. It means vapor. It means smoke. Two things about smoke, it doesn't last very long and you can't hold on to it very well, right? (laughs) Try to catch smoke, that's not going to happen. It gives the appearance of being something, but it really is nothing you can hold on to. 
And so Solomon is, is opening his diary with those words. This man's diary is one sentence old, and, and he tells us that, that his search has proven futile. It has proven empty, vain, meaningless. I can't find a meaningful life under the sun, right? That's where we've been spending time. We've learned through our study that those two phrases, meaningless and under the sun, form this monotonous refrain repeated by Solomon 30 times in his diary. It's all a vapor, empty, hollow, I looked for meaning in life and I came up empty. I, I looked for purpose in life and the sum of that search was, was zero. Nothing I saw, nothing I attempted or produced or initiated or participated in. Nothing in this life under the sun only resulted in anything that really satisfied, really fulfilled, really gave meaning to my life. Well, where did you look, Solomon? Where did you go looking for a a purpose-filled, meaningful, satisfying life. In chapter 1, he said, well, I looked in nature. I looked to nature to find myself, like many people do in our culture today. I went to nature to find myself. No good. Didn't find it there. At the end of chapter 1, human philosophy and wisdom, it proved futile futile and and shallow and pointless. In chapter 2, It was a pursuit of physical pleasures. I'm going to live for gratifying my physical pleasures. I'm going to go all out. Did it fulfill? No, Solomon says, meaningless. At the end of chapter 2, it's work. Perhaps one's vocation can bring meaning and fulfillment to life. So Solomon invests himself there. Not under the sun, only empty toil, no substance, no lasting meaning. In chapter 3, the cyclical nature of life, birth and death and planting and harvesting and mourning and and dancing, it proves to be tiresome and repetitive and unfulfilling. In chapter 4, he says, well, maybe fame and, and, and acquiring position, maybe that's where it's at. At the end of that search, he concludes that, Oh, it's short-lived at best, tenuous. You hardly get to hang on to such things. It's vanity. In chapter 5, Solomon probes the pursuit of wealth as a worthy end in itself. Acquire as much wealth as you can. Maybe that's where a fulfilling life is. Alas, he says, it's a chasing after win because it's wealth hard won, but it is so easily lost. Meaningless. In chapter 6, he observes that ultimately death comes no matter who you are, no matter what you do, death is going to come. In the end, everybody stands on this, this, this dying ground as equals, regardless of what the rest of your life looked like. You're all in the same place. That's chapter 6, meaningless. And then in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, the uncertainty of life robs it of any lasting fulfillment, grievous inequalities, cruel twists, painful unfairnesses. There's so much that's unknown, so much that's impossible to control, and this really haunts Solomon. The wicked live and the good die. The poor get poorer, the rich get richer off of the poor. The weak survive, the healthy don't. The law-abiding go to jail and the lawbreaker goes free. 
The diligent suffer loss and the careless prosper. Life's not fair. Solomon laments for four chapters. As he looks at life under, under the sun, he concludes, you know, the, the rule of life under the sun is there are no rules. It does what it wants to do. Ten chapters, church family, that we have been through of futility and empty frustration that feels a lot like meaningless chasing after wind. But of course, herein lies one of the, the great contributions of this amazing book to you and me. Without having to travel down all of these dead-end trails that Solomon did, without having to experience personally his disappointment, we get a first-hand look at life's emptiness when there's no divine dimension. And that's a huge, a huge help to us. When, 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 when we don't have to go under the sun and go down all these rabbit trails that Solomon went to, we don't have to experience that. That's good for us. So that's profitable for us. We have seen what life under the sun looks like when God is left out of your life. Vanity, emptiness, meaningless. Now, if, if Solomon stops at chapter 10, we're in deep trouble, right? Because what's left if, if that's where it ends? But most fortunate for us, it does not end in chapter 10. The last two chapters, 11 and 12, bring in this divine perspective that is so absolutely essential to that maximized, purpose-filled, meaning-filled life that Solomon longs for, a life that I hope you and I already possess through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. An above-the-sun life. Do you have that life? Do you have that life today? Yeah. Yeah. In 11.5, Solomon declares that there is a sovereign creator God who has made all things. Finally, in chapter 11, Solomon goes above the sun and he says there's a God. And he made everything. And we can know this God and, and live in, in an intensely satisfying, fulfilling relationship with him right now. We're made by this God and for this God, and we're accountable to this God, Solomon will say in chapter 11. And we can enjoy uh, uh, the, the fullness of this life under the, the sun so long as we do not forget that everything we have is sourced in God. And one day we're going to stand before God as our maker, and we're going to give an account to him for how we've done this life. Have we lived for him or for ourselves? Have we lived for his glory or have we lived for our own glory? To drive this home so that we can't possibly miss it, Solomon says in chapter 12, verse 1, since this earthly sojourn is, is so brief, and, and if we really want a maximized life while we're here, it only makes sense that we would remember our Creator in the days of our what? In the days of our youth. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Not one wasted day in which he is not included in your life. Solomon says that's the secret. That's the secret. That's what needs to happen. And if you recall that, word, that Hebrew word for remember, it means always act decisively in favor of God. And so the stress is on action. Act decisively in favor of God from your youth all the way through to your old age. 
Every thought, every word, every decision, every choice is God-influenced, Bible-directed, faith-focused. The best life under the sun, Solomon says, is, a, is one that is lived above the sun. Would you agree? Yes, you would. Remembering from our youth right on through to the days of our old age, to live this way, says Solomon, is to come to the end of your earthly journey and to not have any regrets. We talked about that last time. In verse 8 of chapter 12, Solomon writes the same words with which we opened the diary 12 chapters ago. He says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Only this time, his thinking is very different than it was clear back in chapter 1. How futile, how empty, how pointless, he says in verse 8, to have lived and not known the key to living. What a waste to have died without having enjoyed life and and known what it's all about, the creature in relationship to his or her creator, living for God, living before God, living unto God. Tragedy of tragedies, Solomon would be saying in verse 8, a great waste and utterly meaningless to have lived and not to have known the one who is the key to living. That's what he says. And by repeating now this this opening line from chapter 1, here at the close of the book, Solomon is letting us know that his diary is formally done. He has bracketed it with the same phrase from chapter 1 clear to chapter 12, put a different meaning on it in chapter 12, but it's the same phrase. And so we know the diary has come to an end. Now all that's left is an epilogue, some final words so that he can be sure that we take away what he has intended for us to take away from his journal, from his diary. And that brings us then, church family, to verses 9 through 14 and the close of the study. So on your note page, in red, Solomon says, in closing, first, I want you to know that I've told you the truth in my diary. I have told you the truth. Verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of what? Truth. Solomon says, I want you to know I told you the truth in my diary. I've, I've only told you the truth. So he's letting us into his heart here. And he wants to make sure we understand that, that, that he has taken great care and effort to write down this diary of what a journey under the sun looks like and what he has shared is the truth. He says, the things you've just read, the details of my search, the places I went, the people I encountered, the issues I confronted, all of it, it's not empty chatter or careless experimenting. Uh, It's not philosophical egghead kind of stuff. It's, it's, It's not some frustrated writer longing to get something, anything published, whether it's true or not. That's not me, Solomon says. I have told you the truth. I've written to you as a wise man endowed with a supernatural wisdom from God. My goal, to make it possible 
for you to profit from my journey and not have to duplicate my footsteps. I like that. Don't you like that? I like the feel of that. The motivation of Solomon was that by penning this journal, he might save us much grief because his journey wasn't a pleasant one. It was painful. It was trouble-filled. It was dangerous. And so he genuinely wants to impart the fruit of his search to us so that we won't walk this path and, and, and come to his conclusions on our own. He's saving us a lot of pain. My words aren't flimsy. They're not hollow. They're not cheap. In fact, he says, I weighed them carefully for their clarity and for their implications. In fact, that word weighing in verse 9, it's the Hebrew word for sifted. I wrestled with and I sweated over and, and I sifted every word in my diary that I wrote down. I want you to know that. What I've written, it's, it's, it's true. No speculation. No assuming, no guessing. You know the truth. I've only given you the truth. Now, had Solomon lived in in our day and had a cell phone, he might well have said here, I went into all the places under the sun where life happens, and I took videos of what life looks like when you leave God out of it. I just chronicled the whole thing on my phone. And, And, you know, the pictures don't lie. It is what it is. Solomon doesn't have a cell phone. So what does he do? He takes all the pictures with his eyes and with his mind, and then he, he puts them on the page through his pen, and he shows us the truth. And then he says on your note page, in closing, secondly, you should know that I was only the secretary for the real author of this diary. The one shepherd. Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, is like a goad. And we say, well, what's a goad? We don't really do much goading these days, do we? We don't live around livestock. So so what was a goad? Well, a goad was a long rod that had a metal sharpened metal point on the end of it. It was used mainly by the oxen handler who, who, who prodded his animals who were usually quite content to just stay in one place and chew the cud. And so they would prod the, the oxen into action. And so it got them going. And Solomon says, the reason I labored over my words and I sifted them and I, and I sharpened them was so that they would prod your will They would spur your heart into action, especially if you're one of those who would be content to just foolishly go through your life never looking up to God, never considering the direction that you're going or or how short your life really is and what you're doing with it. I wanted to, to prod you with my diary. Don't stay where you are. Look up. Go above the sun. And Ecclesiastes, he says, it's like a row of of nails or pegs driven into the wall. And I think about the coat rack in the the back hall and how loaded with clothes and and other stuff that coat rack gets after a year of Awana. 
It's amazing. I, you can't imagine how many things you can, can hang on, on one of those pegs. But man, a lot gets hung on those pegs. And so Solomon is saying, you can hang a lot of life on the nails of truth that I have provided for you in this book. I've hung life up for anyone to see who's willing to, to make the effort, especially so you can see what life looks like without God in it. And then Solomon adds this critical statement. In closing, you must know that the words of this diary, they're not actually my words. They come from the, what is it again? The one shepherd. And notice that shepherd is capitalized. Did you notice that? It's capitalized. Solomon borrows this this title from Psalm 80 verse 1 where where God is called the shepherd of Israel. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a a flock, you who are enthroned above the angels, shine forth, shepherd of Israel. Well, Solomon is certainly not speaking about himself in verse 11. He's not calling himself the shepherd, but but God as, as the one who is really the author of this diary. And that's huge. That's that's a huge statement right there. Very important. This is one of the clearest Old Testament declarations that we have concerning the inspiration of Scripture. When we say that our Bibles are inspired, what we're saying is that while a a human author penned a a certain text or a certain book and, and they're expressing their own personality and their word choices in their writing, when we say that a that a book of the Bible is inspired by God, we're saying that the content expressed and and the purpose behind those words are actually coming straight from God. The message is God. It's it's His mind and His heart on the printed page. We sometimes use that expression here. Let's open our Bibles and, and let's spend time with God's heart on the printed page. Why? Because it's inspired. It's inspired. This is why we can say that our our Bibles are the very words of God. In the New Testament, we hear Solomon's thinking just worded a little bit differently. For example, the Apostle Paul will say in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is what, church? Uh, It's breathed out by God. What does that mean? It means it's inspired, isn't it? All scripture is breathed out by God. That's inspiration. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for for training in righteousness. God breathes out his word through a human writer so that we can profit from it, be goaded by it, hang our lives on the truths that are in it. The Apostle Peter said it like this. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men did what? They spoke from God. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is that? That's inspiration. What we hold in our hands, brothers and sisters, this morning is a book like no other book. It's the only book written by God. And you have it in your hands. It makes sense that we would put Bible in our name, doesn't it? Because it's it's his book. It's His truth. He's the writer of it. And we should love it and cherish it and revere it like no other book.
And just as a sidebar observation here, this is free. This isn't going to cost you anything here this morning. What a great companion and compliment the term one shepherd is to the image of God that we got back up in verse 1 of chapter 12 where we are to remember our creator. Take these two names together because they really do. Uh, they, they just they form a beautiful pair. When we think of God as our creator, that carries with it some images. Images of God being high and, and holy and, and exalted and infinitely powerful. If we're going to call him the creator of everything, that makes him big, doesn't it? Super big. But with that image also comes a certain measure of of distance and 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 it's so big that and I'm so small and and I can't get close to that God. He's the creator. But then the one shepherd, that term reminds us that that our God is also very near. That he is close. Uh, he not only made us but but he knows us and he wants to be known by us. The shepherd is personal. The shepherd is involved. The shepherd is, is right here. And so the shepherd is the one who, who writes these words, Solomon says, because he wants us to know the truth, but he also wants us to know him. And so it's little wonder that, that Jesus will say in John chapter 10, I am the good one, the good shepherd. I want you to know me. I'm here. I'm close. I'm involved. Now, all of this moves Solomon to then issue a warning to his readers in this epilogue. And the warning comes in verse 12. My son, beware, beware of anything beyond these things that I've written or make of making many books. There's no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Mm. Every high schooler. Loves this verse. <laughs> Much study is weariness, mom and dad. <laughs> it says it right here in the book. You know, for anyone diligently searching for the source of a purpose-filled, meaningful life, Solomon says the answer's right here. It's right here. We need go no farther than looking up to God, going above the sun to the creator and the shepherd of our lives. Apparently, though, Solomon knows that there are those who really only ever want to stay in search mode. And that's why there's this warning. Because there are those who would really be content to never go above the, the, the sun. They just want to search all the time, all the time. And maybe you know people like this. So that you, there's, never, there's never enough knowing. There's never enough searching. In fact... Arriving at the answer is actually not good. It spoils everything because the search has come to an end and all some people want to do is, is search but have no end. So he's not saying that studying is wrong. He's not saying that inquiring into the unknown is a bad thing. But when the search becomes the goal and all you want to do is search all the time, unending inquiry becomes the end game, well, Solomon says, if that's where you are, you're doomed because you're going to never get above the sun. You're going to stay under the sun. When the search takes you beyond the conclusions of this diary, this book, 
You've gone too far. God is the goal. He is the end. The purpose-filled, meaningful life is in God and in no one else. It's in Him and in nothing else. End of search. End of search. Beware. And that is exactly what we read in the last two verses. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commands. His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What does Solomon say? He says, here's the sum. Here's the bottom line and the final conclusion. Here's the end of the search. What should we do? Two things. Fear God and obey whatever he says. That doesn't sound too complicated, does it? (laughs) If you flip that note page over, going above the sun, Solomon says, in closing, everything in this life becomes meaningful when, first, we fear the creator shepherd of our souls. Would you agree with that? Now, when we read this word fear, and perhaps uh, ponder it for a moment, our first inclination might be to hesitate. Because for most of us, the word fear carries with it inherently some negative connotations, ideas of, uh, of terror or, or dread or running away from something because it's terrifying or, or scary. But that's not the, the idea behind this Hebrew word for fear. To fear God is is the Bible's way of saying, take God seriously. Take him seriously. Acknowledge him in your life as, as the highest good there could ever be. Respect him and revere him. Stand in awe of him and honor and worship him. Build everything in your life on him and center everything in your life around him. Fear him. There's nothing in front of him in your life. There's there's nothing before him in your life. He is first. This kind of fear, we need to understand that that Solomon is referring to. It's not an emotion. Fear is typically an emotion, an emotion of fear, but not here. Here it's an attitude of the heart. This fear is not an emotion. It's a valuing God as your God. You treasure him. You, you love him, you long for him, you adore him, you cherish him, you fear him. Does that make sense? You following that, that, yeah, that thought? Yeah, because that, that's really important. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen says, Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, values the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Church family, realize that that, that that verse, Proverbs 28, 14, essentially summarizes the entire message of the book of Ecclesiastes in a single sentence. A meaning-filled life belongs to those who value God, Solomon says. Harden your heart towards him, and you can be sure of one thing. Trouble's going to come. Trouble's going to come. It's the first ten chapters of the diary, right? The constant refrain, meaningless, meaningless. Because you've hardened your heart. 
You're not valuing the Creator Shepherd. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. And and Psalm 128.1, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. Live with God as your highest value. We ask the question, well, how can I know if I'm really fearing God? There's an easy way to tell. Because fearing God inwardly looks an awful lot like obeying God outwardly. And that's verse 13, isn't it? He puts those two things together inseparably. So on your note page, Solomon says, in closing, everything in this life becomes meaningful when our life and our lifestyle are submitted to God's word. Because that's where he communicates his heart to us. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. When God is on the throne of my heart then what he wants for me to do is at the top of my list. What he wants me to do, not what I want to do. What he has said in his word, that's what I'm going to do. His priorities are my priorities. His moral desires, well, they shape my moral decisions. It starts in my heart with me valuing him, fearing him. But then it looks an awful lot like obedience. So if you want to know if you fear God, how much do you obey? It's pretty easy, isn't it? Obedience is the outward expression of inward treasuring, inward cherishing, loving, fearing God. Jesus says very much this same thing on one occasion when a massive crowds were, were following Jesus. And, and they weren't following Jesus so much because they loved Jesus. They were following Jesus because it was the in thing to do at that time. Jesus was very popular, so he was attracting a crowd, and everybody was kind of falling in. And Jesus is looking at all of these people, and in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says to these people, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And what's the rest of the state, the, the question? <laughs> and, and, and do not do what I say. What, what's with that? Jesus says very clearly his expectation is that if we're going to say that he is our Lord and and we truly treasure him and cherish him and love him, then we're going to do what, church? We're going to obey him. If you're going to call me God, then I am right to expect more than lip service from you. I will see my lordship in your life by how you live and by what you, you do and what and not just what you say. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense in Solomon's day. It makes perfect sense in Jesus' day. And it makes perfect sense in our day. James in the New Testament put it like this. James 1, 22 and 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. And what's the next phrase? <laughs> Do what it says. Not rocket science here. The man who looks intently into the perfect law, into the book that gives freedom and continues to do this, it's a lifestyle, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. A meaningful life, 
awaits those who will fear God and obey Him. Do you believe it? Do you believe that? Yeah, yeah. Blessed in all they do because they know who they're doing it for. Oh, may that be us, church. And all of this brings us to the final verse and a final truth. The final verse, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here's the end of the matter, Solomon says. Fear God and obey him, knowing that one day you're going to stand in front of him and give an account for your life. (laughs) That's good to know. Inspired by God, Solomon has masterfully written, by way of Ecclesiastes, what I would consider to be a long gospel tract explaining what life looks like and feels like when God is left out of your life. His goal, ultimately, has been to get us, his readers, to read these last two verses in such a way that our lives will be forever redirected to above the sun living. No more under the sun living for us. But living as we do in the age of the New Testament, we all know that Solomon is not able to give us the most important part of above the sun living. What is the most important part of above the sun living, church? It's Jesus, isn't it? It is Jesus. And Solomon doesn't give us Jesus here. He gives us fearing God, obeying commands, and know that there is judgment. And it stops. He doesn't give us Jesus. Now that's the nature of progressive revelation in Scripture. God slowly over time unveils His plan. But Solomon living 900 years before the birth of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of the return of Jesus, Solomon can't tell us that he can tell us that God is real that he's the creator shepherd that he's to be valued and loved and obeyed because we're going to stand before him in judgment but that's as far as Solomon can go which is why we've added from our New Testament vantage point one more truth there on your note page in closing Everything in this life becomes super meaningful when we realize that we matter so much to God that Jesus took our judgment and gave us his life. That's it, isn't it? That, that is it. How, how can any human life not take on incredible meaning and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment and direction and joy when that, when that life understands what God has done for us in Jesus? How can you not have a meaningful life when you know what God did through Jesus for us? Solomon didn't have that. We do. One could read verse 14 and say, man, what a bummer of a note to end a journal on, right? I mean, impending judgment. Thank you very much. 
But I would encourage you, encourage you, church family, don't look at verse 14 in that way. It's like, what a bummer, judgment. No, see it as a statement from God because that, that's exactly what it is. Remember who the author is here. He's the good, she's the, he's the shepherd. See it as a statement from, from God about how much he cares about us. God's judgment means he very much cares about our lives. God cares about our decisions. He cares about our choices. He cares about what we do and why we do it. He cares about what we believe. He cares about how we live. God would not waste his time judging things that don't matter. So what that means is that we must matter very much to God. See verse 14 that way. It's a statement about the fact that we matter to God. But we all know what we are in ourselves, don't we? We all know in our heart of hearts what we really are. We are all sinners who have failed to fear God consistently, failed to value Him, failed to obey His commandments times beyond counting. Am I telling you the truth? I'm telling you about me. I have failed more times than I can possibly count. Failed to fear my God and failed to obey my God. We must agree with what the Bible says. Romans 3.23 All have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Romans 3.10 None is righteous. No, not one. Before this judgment of God spoken of in verse 14, we do not stand a chance unless something changes, something intervenes. And God knows this, and so he himself breaks into our world and into our life under the sun, and he does that through the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't have to do that, but he wanted to do that. Jesus as God lives the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then in demonstration of a love that you and I will never fully understand, he willingly dies on a cross to pay the sin debt that we owe to God but could never pay. Jesus conquers sin and death by rising from the dead on the third day, ensuring that the just and right judgment of God will not fall on us because it has fully and forever fallen on Jesus. This deliverance from judgment, the scriptures tell us, happens in our life the moment our faith is in Jesus alone and not in any other thing or any other one. In fact, here's how Jesus says it, church. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into what? judgment but has passed from death to life could it be any more plain we do not need to be afraid of verse 14 of ecclesiastes 12 why because we have jesus second corinthians 5:21 god made him jesus who had no sin to be sin for us jesus took our sin upon himself at the cross so that in him he might be able to give us his righteousness in trade through faith in him. No judgment. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no sentence of punishment hanging over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. No judgment. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to do what, church? To bring us to God. No judgment. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then approach the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment, the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We do say amen and amen. Church family, when we began the book of Ecclesiastes, the message we heard over and over and over again was meaningless, meaningless, under the sun. Everything is meaningless. But now, through faith in Jesus, we can confidently say, meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful. Because of Jesus. Life above the sun, S-U-N, because we have life in the sun, S-O-N. Amen and amen.